Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Over the past few months, I've been conducting a series of interviews with authors writing about the violence in Indonesia that began in 1965. So far, I've talked with Jeff Robinson, Kate McGregor, Annie Pullman, and Jess Melvin. Today, I'm completing the short series by talking with Vanessa Heerman. Vanessa earned her PhD from the University of Melbourne and she is now a lecturer of Indonesian studies at Charles Darwin University in Australia. And she's written a fantastic examination of the way the violence played out in the East Java region of Indonesia. In the book, she looks at the way violence began and continued, but she also offers a wonderful description of the response to the violence by the Communist Party of Indonesia and by individuals who were targeted for imprisonment or murder. It's, it's a new and a different perspective, and, and one that really supplements the books that we've talked about earlier in this series. So I'm really excited about having a chance to talk with Vanessa about it. Vanessa, welcome, and thanks for joining us on New Books in Genocide Studies. Thank you, Kelly. It's great to be here. So, Vanessa, we always start these interviews the same way. I wonder if you could say a little bit about yourself and how you came to be um, interested in the history of Indonesia and, and teaching about Indonesia. Okay, well, I was born in Indonesia and I spent all of my primary schooling years in Indonesia in a town called Malang, which is uh, a town high on the hills. It's on a mountain plateau and it's surrounded by about five volcanoes. And I was born there and I grew up there with my extended family. And I suppose I was born at the height of the New Order regime. So in 1973, the regime was consolidating its rule at the time. And I had no idea about the massacres that had happened uh, surrounding my hometown, in my hometown. And my family were uh, took great pains to protect us from what had happened uh, just a few years earlier. So um, I grew up without knowing anything about the massacres. All I had heard about was how evil the Indonesian Communist Party was and I grew up on a diet of anti-communist propaganda. My magazines and comic books were filled with images of what the Indonesian Communist Party did to murder the six uh, generals at Lubang Buaya on the outskirts of Jakarta on the 30th of September 1965. And I remember I was filled with terror about the Indonesian Communist Party and one of the things that you used to hear as a child was uh, don't stay out late outside after the sun goes down because the Gerwani women might kidnap you. And Gerwani was the Indonesian women's movement and they were a leftist women's organisation that was very much demonised by uh, the army after 1965. They were accused of um, having sexually 
tortured, mutilated, and killed the generals at Lubangbuaya in Jakarta. So I was um, brought up with this sense of fear about uh, the PKI and about Gerwani without really knowing what it was about. And I heard my family sometimes talk about people who had disappeared, some friends and uh, distant relatives. And whenever um, we'd ask questions about this, the conversation suddenly closed up. So I never understood why people disappeared or why we, we couldn't talk about them. Um, so it wasn't until I came to Australia and I was I was 11 when I came to Australia and I was educated in Australia in secondary school and then I graduated and I was at first year of university and um, there was a, a socialist uh, activist intellectual who is also a scholar of, of uh, Indonesian studies, Max Lane, who took me aside uh one day at a conference uh, on uh, activist politics and he said to me, what do you know about 1965? And I told him this classic, perfect New Order regime version of history that the communists murdered these army generals and the communists were evil and the army took over to restore order in Indonesia. And I was 17 years old. I was at first year university at Melbourne University. And Max was astounded that I didn't know anything about that past. And he said, did you know about the killings of of leftists after that? And I denied this to him. I said, no, nothing like that happened. So for me, it was huge challenge to overcome years of uh, depoliticization, but also the I guess it was a sense of trauma within my own uh, family circles about not talking about that past that I really um, suffered from as a result of that because there's a certain historical blindness that was promoted that people were quite willing to take on because of the trauma of uh, what had happened with the violence. So for me, it was a personal journey of trying to uncover what had happened. And when I became involved with um, trying to support pro-democracy movements in Indonesia from Australia, I became interested because I thought, well, I'm in Australia and I've got more freedom in Australia to say what I want to say compared to some people my own age in Indonesia who wanted to do things but were met with repression. I felt that it was um, it was something I could do to support the pro-democracy movements in Indonesia. So um, I started to think, started to go back to that conversation with Max and I started to think in my mind, I started to think, what would happen if Indonesia um, did not go through this period of having suffered a huge setback with a loss of uh, sizable political and social movement that uh, was represented in the Indonesian Communist Party, but also in those mass organisations and people's willingness in general to uh, question and to criticise so many of those things were lost with the rise of the army uh, in Indonesia with the New Order regime. And I, and I asked the question, what would happen if those massacres and that suppression had not happened in 1965? What would Indonesia look like today? And why is there still not a strong left movement uh, arising to take the place of the PKI in the 1990s? So out of that, I wanted to discover what was it that made 
this these events in Indonesia so cataclysmic that it was difficult for Indonesia and for Indonesians to overcome the legacies of 1965. And I suppose for me it was to conduct this PhD research in the form that it was, it was more to do with my own desire to learn and my curiosity about uh, my own uh, my own country where I was born and why the people that I knew, my family and so on, um, went through that process of pain and of suffering, of trying to forget what had happened to them and other people that they knew. So that, that the PhD was just a, a, a vehicle, I suppose, to, to be able to do that, to research that past. So in your book, you rely on a variety of sources, and some of them are... Um archival, but some of them, maybe many of them, are personal interviews. Can you say a little bit about why why you chose that approach to learning about this question and and some of the opportunities and maybe some of the challenges that pose? Well, I suppose uh, I wanted to take on oral history as a method and deploy that in my research, uh, partly because I think when I commenced the research, I felt that that was an area of uh, something that had had not been addressed before, like the, the richness of the oral repository that was there in Indonesia where people had not been uh, free to talk about their activist lives as well as what happened after 1965 uh, to... Uh, the people who suffered the repression. So that silencing that operated for a long time under the New Order regime, I felt that with 1998, with Reformasi, with um, the fall of Suharto, that one of the biggest gains of that period was the ability of people to speak. And uh, we know that archives themselves are not objective. So what are collected uh, in the archives uh, also suffer political biases. They push a particular position and they mould a particular reality. And for me, the voices of Indonesians who were then uh, already, you know, in their 60s, 70s and 80s, uh, it was precious to capture those voices in order to um, get those voices to challenge the silences in the archives, the distortions in the archives, the uh, New Order regime propaganda that came out, you know, in official papers, in archives, in documents, but also in those kinds of uh, children's comic books that I read as a child. I felt that to humanise the survivors through oral history really uh, went back to those origins of oral history uh, in the 1970s in the West when you talk about uh, restoring voice and uh, not giving voice but perhaps reflecting voices that have been marginalised. I wanted, I, I felt that the most powerful challenge to that propaganda that had pre-existed for, for 32 years under the New Order regime was to hear the voices of the people who were deemed to be so dangerous, uh, so as to be to for them to be silenced for three decades. So it was a deliberate choice on my part to uh, highlight the voices of the survivors, but also being mindful that uh, the Indonesian archives are difficult to access, as well as 
Are they tightly guarded? And it's still a very sensitive issue. So it's really about breaking open this um, and uh, this this issue and just you know bringing these voices to light in a sort of a cacophony, if you like, of um, of um, of dissent. That's what I wanted to do with my project. So let's turn to the book in particular, and you spend maybe the first quarter of the book or so um, in doing a really valuable analysis of the Communist Party of India, Indonesia, the PKI, in, in the years running up to the violence. Uh, can you say a little bit about what this party was and, and how it understood its roles and goals and, and, and maybe how it understood its prospects in the early 1960s? Well, I suppose um, we need to start a little bit earlier than that and we need to start with uh, the late 1940s, which is uh, it was a, a time of uh, the War of Independence against the Dutch. So after the end of the Second World War, the Dutch wanted to return to Indonesia and recolonise uh, Indonesia after the, the end of the Second World War. And so uh, the... Indonesian nationalist movement resisted this and Sukarno and Hatta uh, declared independence on the 17th of August 1945. And But that wasn't the end. Uh, that, that didn't bring about independence because the Dutch resisted that. And from 1945 to 1949, there was a, a war of independence to uh, win uh, independence uh, once and for all. So the 1940s were uh, a very, formative, for, very formative years for Indonesia uh, coming out of the, the Japanese occupation. So the Indonesian Communist Party, the PKI, became legal again from October 1945. And so uh, the party had been suppressed and underground since about 1926 before that. So this is a new party that was just getting used to operating uh, above ground again. However, in 1948, there was a, an internal skirmish amongst the Republican forces themselves on the Indonesian side, where there were disagreements about uh, how to win independence from the Dutch and what kinds of concessions they ought to be provided uh, to the Dutch. So at the time, the uh, Indonesian Republican side was very much struggling in uh, trying to defeat the Dutch militarily. They were very much outnumbered and outclassed. And so under pressure of the independence movement, uh, there were disagreements with, uh, within the Indonesian side about how best to win independence. So uh, there was a what's a, an incident called the Madiun Affair in 1948 where a group of uh, left-wing uh, militias uh, overthrew, uh, not overthrew, but but uh, took over the, the town of, of Madiun in East Java uh, in protest against uh, the leadership of the army who they felt was trying to marginalise the left. So this became known as, as the Madiun Affair and there were accusations then uh, that the Communist Party was uh, trying to sabotage the fight against the Dutch by raising this issue of, uh, of Madiun. So Sukarno uh, suppressed the Madiun affair within only a matter of two weeks. And uh, But what, what you should think about in terms of 1948 and what happened later in 1965, that the uh, suppression of the Madiun affair was much uh, less grave and much less serious as a setback to the Communist Party um, but the but the Republican forces were split as a result of Madiun. 
So the left then was accused of trying to sabotage the greater goal of fighting for the Indonesian Republic. So this rift remained uh, within nationalist politics. So some people were, were imprisoned, uh, leaders of the PKI were, uh, were killed, were executed, um, and then the Dutch took advantage of this rift within the Republican forces to uh, attack Indonesia in the second uh, police action of 1948. And so then the left was blamed for weakening the, the, um, the fight for the Republic at this time. So this sort of uh, the rift lingered into the 1950s and uh, impacted on the way the army thought about the communist side as well as how the uh, Islamic organisations like Nahdlatul Ulama, how they felt about the communist side because as part of uh, the retreat by leftist forces from Madiun, there, were, uh, there occurred some killings of public servants, of religious leaders in East Java as they were uh, retreating from uh, being chased by the, uh, the Republican side under Sukarno. So this um, created some uh, feeling of antipathy towards the left from the army and the Islamic forces, and this lingered on into the, into the 1950s when Indonesia became independent. So um, when independence came in December 1949, it was a time of, of jubilation of finally the end of very long conflict, not only the Second World War, Japanese occupation, but also this period of fighting against the Dutch. And Indonesia was in a huge crisis because it suffered the effects of the war. There was a, a lack of uh, investment in infrastructure, in the productive capacity of the, this young country. There was a lack of uh, technical expertise in the country. So big questions loomed about what do we do with this new nation we've created. And the Communist Party really started out on the back foot because of the events of Madiun, even though uh, most people had been released from prison uh, by not late 19. 48 when they had to fight the Dutch. So uh, there was a certain rapprochement going on, but at the same time, this underlying suspicion remained. So the Communist Party had to rebuild from that period of uh, the aftermath of Madiun. So um, they elected a new leadership under Chairman Dipanusantara Aidit. And in 1951, and he was flanked by two deputies on one side, Muhammad Lukman, and on the other side, uh, Nyoto. And this is the sort of the triumvirate, the three men who presided over the growth of the Communist Party, which then uh, became a very large, sizable communist movement by the time uh, we have the events of 1965. So it's a, it, it's a story of an incredible growth in this party that in 1948 was really reduced to several thousand into becoming a party of several million by 1965. So the story of how the party grew, particularly in areas, uh, strongholds of the party, namely Central and East Java, are really uh, things that I look at in my book, in the earlier parts of the book, uh, to look at, well, how did the party grow so effectively in that time? The, the events, so after the events of the 30th of September in, in East Java, can you say something about 
how the army and how the army's allies work to eliminate or defeat or whatever the right verb is, the PKI in, in East Java. Who, who makes this decision and who are the players and how does this happen? Okay, so um, I guess in terms of East Java, where the party's uh, strengths are located is largely in the urban areas. So the PKI continued to uh, worry throughout about its lack of influence in the countryside, and it's something that they kept trying to address. We have to think about the peasantry. We have to strengthen the peasant movement in the in the countryside. So the party grew because of the... Uh, the attractiveness of an organisation that was perceived to be modern, that represented uh, new ideas of how to fulfil independence, the promise of independence. What does an independent Indonesia look like? And it ranged from things like literacy classes to organising women around issues such as uh, bringing up the family, educating your children. And it became like a a very integrated uh, mass movement, I suppose, because it reached into uh, households across a a range of levels in terms of students, trade union organisations, women's uh, also uh, intellectuals, university graduates, of which Indonesia still had very few at the time. So the party uh, had effective political influence in a a large number of spheres of of life in Indonesia and in East Java as well. I mean, East Java was was a little bit complex for the PKI precisely because they didn't... uh, dominate politics as effectively as perhaps in central Java. So in East Java, the Indonesia, Indonesia's largest Islamic organisation, Nahdlatul Ulama, was uh, the highest vote-getter in 1955 and the PKI and the PNI, the Indonesian Nationalist Party, then uh, followed. So the PKI had to deal in East Java with a very complex uh, political environment where in particular areas such as the, the city of Madiun on the border, the city of Surabaya, the capital, the PKI enjoyed large majorities of support in, in the urban areas. But it uh, couldn't be complacent because of the um, that unevenness of politics in East Java and the fact that they were relatively weak in the countryside. So when 1965 uh, occurred, the uh, question was what had happened uh, a lot of people were not sure what had happened at the time and this is where the the fallacy of, of the claim that this was a premeditated orchestrated attempt by the Indonesian Communist Party to take over power in Indonesia was uh, quickly exposed because many of my interviewees were not very clear about what had happened in Jakarta and what were the implications for them. So many people at first didn't hide or didn't go on the run because they felt that they hadn't done anything wrong. They didn't understand that soon the the persecution would reach them. So many people remained uh, politically active. They continued to uh, engage in their daily routines and so on. And so the repression in East Java also started uh, relatively slowly when compared to places in like Aceh, for example, uh, partly because of the presence of uh, officers who were loyal to Sukarno, army officers who were loyal to Sukarno in the Brawijaya Division. So the Brawijaya Division was the 
Army Territorial Division that was in charge of East Java. So the uh, operations, the violence, didn't start immediately after the the first to the 4th of October. The 4th of October was when the bodies of the army men were exhumed from Lubangbuaya, from a well where they'd been disposed. Uh, so it didn't immediately begin. And the commander of the army, uh, Baski Rahmat, at the time was in Jakarta. So there was a bit of slowness in East Java and it was sort of precipitated by the army officers holding back a little bit and waiting to see what Sukarno's take was on what had happened in Jakarta. So uh, there was no uh, immediate commencement of the of violence there. And it was also very localised in terms of uh, where the violence occurred and uh, depending on the, on the political position of the army officers concerned uh, in each particular locality. So we don't have uh, an immediate sort of... Uh, uh, commencement of violence across the province, uh, nothing like that whatsoever. So it was re- it really started slowly in different parts. It started in Kadiri on the 11th of October where people had a, 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 a rally in the town square and then there was a certain assumption that the, at, the, at the end of the rally they would march to the PKI headquarters and they would protest there. And this was the earliest uh, killing that occurred in East Java was in the town of Kadiri. And we now know based on um, oral history interviews but also uh, writing and research that's been done also by other scholars about how this violence uh, was organised, that there had been several meetings that had taken place in the Kadiri area between leaders of the Nadatul Ulama's uh, youth wing, Ansar, uh, together with army officers in the Kadiri area as well as with the um, religious leaders in Kadiri, primarily around the um, the Pasantren, the Islamic religious boarding school uh, in that area. So uh, from that we know that... There, were, there was cooperation going on between the army and uh, groups such as Ansar, the Nadatul Ulama's youth wing that had a paramilitary force called Bansar or the Multi-Purpose Brigades, Baris Ansar Baguna. And uh, in East Java, East Java is, is, is distinctive in a way in terms of the participation of civilians in the violence. So... Um, Civilian civilians were uh, encouraged to participate in the violence with the idea that if you don't participate in the violence, then you could be the victims of the communists. So there was a mixture of propaganda and incitement to kill uh, using people's own uh, sense of safety and their fears for themselves, uh, as well as an element of... uh, of force that people needed to take part uh, in these operations, not only to safeguard themselves and their communities, uh, but also in order to help the army. So I, I know you, I, we've talked, I know you know Jess Melvin, and um, Jess writes about Aceh in the, the two books, or at least in this particular section of your book, the two books deal with the same period and the same issue in different regions. Well, I wonder how your book converses with hers how how would you think about your conclusions 
in, or maybe I should say, what can we learn about the, the, the violence as a whole from comparing the two regions the two of you studied? Well, uh, firstly, I think with East Java, the mitigating factor that prevented violence from becoming widespread and occurring very rapidly was the, the presence of those Sukarnoist uh, army officers who, while they were not in favour of the PKI, they had a wait-and-see approach as to how did Sukarno read the, these events, what is he saying, what is his command to as the supreme uh, commander of the armed forces, what does he say uh, about what we should do in this instance. And Sukarno was at pains to point out that, you know, please, uh, this is just a ripple in, in the Indonesian revolution. It's not a big issue. We will get over this. We will manage this. And so there was a bit of a wait-and-see attitude amongst army officers as a result of that. So I guess um, the existence of, you know, uh, documents to say that, you know, we need to unleash killings against the communists and so on, my interpretation of that would be to ask how, if if such documents existed in East Java and there were instructions to the East Java command, how did the officers interpret those documents? Why did they uh, not immediately take action? So there is there is the role of agency here in terms of just because the documents tell you to do something, it doesn't mean that that's what people go ahead and do, that people actually... Uh, find all sorts of reasons and excuses about why they can't operate, uh, they can't act straight away. And, and I think that that's what the role of, you know, oral history can fill some of those gaps in terms of why do people respond differently to what the archives tell you happened on that day? And so when we look at some of the, um, other documents that exist, such as an, auton- a, a, an anonymous report called Report from East Java by an intelligence officer of the army, you see how uneven the unfolding of the violence was across the province. There was not one uniform response to maybe an order that came from the top. People did not immediately say, oh, Suharto is now in charge, we're going to do what he says. There was a great deal of resistance to this, particularly in East Java, because of the loyalty to Sukarno and uh, there were also disagreements between different wings of the armed forces about the extent to which they ought to obey the uh, the positions dictated by the army at the time under uh, General Suharto. So if you think about East Java, this is the uh, national headquarters of the Marines and uh, the Marines and the Air Force and uh, the Navy were not necessarily just going to accept uh, the army's interpretation of events in Jakarta, particularly when over time it became evident that the army was intent on seizing power and displacing Sukarno, then the uh, the picture becomes different. It's no longer about uh, the killing of the army leadership. It's about much more than that. It's about an attempted coup over a longer period of time. So I don't believe that there was... Uh, an immediate seizure of power by the army on the 1st of October uh, just because a, a document might exist saying you can now act against the PKI. 
doesn't mean that that's what people did at the grassroots level and in the regional areas. That's, you know, to me, this is why we need to rely more than on just the archives. We need to see what do people actually do in response to the issuing of a document. And the other thing, Kelly, too... (laughs) So the other thing, Kelly, too, is the what I look at in that particular uh, chapter on the time of killing, the, the slaughter season in East Java, is, is also uh, the issue of uh, not just the killings and the suppression, but also on the how the prisons and the detention centres actually then also supplied the people who were killed, the the victims of the killing fields. Because I think that's one of the things that um, we sometimes tend to lose sight of when talking about this uh, massacre in Indonesia is that there is for a very long time an assumption that Indonesians simply rose up and immediately killed their brethren and in spontaneous mass uprisings and that this is how we get half a million dead. But over time, I find that in my interviews in particular that people were recounting to me their uh, cellmates, the other detainees, particularly prominent detainees who really um, stuck in people's minds, how uh, many of them simply disappeared from the prisons and the detention centres. So when we talk about the massacres, often we're also talking about the disappeared. And, you know, for Indonesians to talk about people who've disappeared as having died is, um, is it's an extreme thing to have to acknowledge. So many people still continue to believe that their loved ones have disappeared and they don't talk about death, even though it's 50 years on now. So when we talk about accounting for these massacres, we've also got to think about that, of not only accounting for the, those who are, who've been killed and who we have records for, but also the people who've simply disappeared in mass graves after these sort of secret detention centres and so on. And so people are recounting this past orally as a way to keep the the names alive, the memories alive about these people because they may well have been the last people to have seen the disappeared alive in the detention centres. And that's really important to keep keep that in mind. No, that's fascinating. Um... One of the advantages that these interviews do is, is allow you access to a to a um, part of this story that I think is often that you can't get to with archives, and that's the experience of the people who are um, trying to survive the uh, the, the violence. So, see, in the weeks and a and, and couple months after this violence begins, in the fall of 1965, um, could you say something about how these individuals who are targeted try to survive? Yeah, so um, the, one of the advantages with a life history approach like what I've done here is you actually get a, a life trajectory where you you get to see that person make sense of those experiences decades on, but they're looking at it as a totality of life experience. So, you know, from the time when they were active to the time when they had to survive the massacres. And I found that people were immediately wanted to talk to me about what happened to them after the 1st of October. And I'd take them back a bit and i say, I want to know more about, about you 
before that happened, what were you doing? And often they get very surprised because a lot of the interviews that have been done since 1998 with the fall of Sahara have always been, tell me about you as a victim after the 1st of October 1965. And they've been categorised in that way. And the experiences as activists have been completely sort of invalidated by the New Order regime, but then also by uh, the people who came afterwards because they don't know how to make sense of those experiences of activism. So I start with that and then from there you can actually get a sense of why people responded in the way that they did. So first why they thought, what have I done? I haven't done anything wrong. Why should I go into hiding? And people did in the end uh, go into hiding, the ones who were not picked up straight away, who were not detained. They did go into hiding because eventually they started to see the spread of the killings to their areas, but also they started to see the the, the way that the uh, the detentions, the raids, the seizures of people and property were taking place. Not only that it was civilians doing it, but under the authority of, of the security forces, whether it was the police or um, or the army. So they started to think, well. There's something bigger going on here, something that I can't quite make sense of, that my organisation is unable to explain to me immediately about what is happening because people do seek uh, information. So one of the interviewees, Pujira uh, Harjo, that I interviewed, uh, who was a unionist at the time, he was in Jakarta and during the events in Jakarta and he started to think, what's what's happened here? And he wanted to ask uh, his trade union, SOBSI, who was, which was a left-wing union uh, confederation, he wanted to ask them, What's going on here? What, what has happened? What, what, is the, uh, what is the impact going to be on us? But the office was closed and he thought, why is the office closed? And he started to get very frightened. He jumped on the train to go back to Surabaya from Jakarta and he started to see that there were patrols and military checkpoints and people were, uh, the train stopped and the military came and searched for people. So they started to see the increasingly repressive situation and that it wasn't about to go away anytime soon. So the communication lines became uh, disrupted because of what had happened and people chose to go underground using the local sort of networks that they had, whatever they could salvage. In East Java, the uh, regional committee of East Java tried to maintain some of those communication links from underground. And so this is another thing which I uncover over the course of my research is that when you think about this, this sort of cataclysm that occurred that resulted in the killing of half a million people, you'd think that all of society shut down and people turned away. They wanted to save themselves. And we know also in the Second World War that there were the underground networks, people were hiding uh, Jews and others who were being persecuted. So I draw on some of the, the insights from Holocaust studies to look at um, what happened in Indonesia. It was impossible that people could just turn their backs on relatives, on colleagues, uh, on fellow activists who they'd been working with and uh, to just turn their backs on them and say, sorry, I can't help you. So I try, you know, very carefully to to try and work out what, what happened to people, how did they manage to find support networks. So I identified different forms of escape uh, where some people escape small towns into Surabaya to seek safety, 
because Surabaya was a big city, it was easy to become anonymous in Surabaya, or they had family in Surabaya who could protect them, or it was a, a radical red city who potentially could uh, protect activists there for a period. And there were other people who left their hometowns because they were too well known in those hometowns and they could be attacked and identified and detained. So they went on the run to uh, other towns where they were less well known. Uh, and what was remarkable to me was that people used their political networks in order to continue to survive and to be able to uh, gain support. So those very political networks that led to them being per- being persecuted, you would think that people would just simply want to wash their hands of that and leave it behind, completely disassociate themselves from that and that's it, walk away, um, you know, expunge your political identity completely and yet um, people couldn't do that a because that sometimes they were too well known and b they could not find any other source of support without relying on those political networks so you have uh, people hiding in larger cities like Surabaya um, in the sort of alleyways of Surabaya where the PKI used to be relatively strong before 1965 and they could hide in those uh, in those alleyways and those communities uh, until such time as the repression came closer and closer and closer into Surabaya where there were more and more raids happening in Surabaya and people were forced to think well what are we going to do we can't stand still Um, we've got this far we've survived the pogroms what do we do now and they while they were in hiding they were sustaining some of their uh, their members and their co- uh, comrades who were in detention. So they were able to go in and send food and uh, other sustenance in prison. So it's a really interesting existence because um, they were not completely still. They were trying also to, to fight back, such as, for example, to consolidate their forces to say, what they're saying about us at Lubang Buaya, that, you know, women were mutilating the generals, cutting off their penises, gouging out their eyes, all this is propaganda. It's all myth. So they tried to fight against some of those uh, those falsehoods amongst their own comrades to try and, and strengthen the forces and to salvage what might be left of the party because they still don't know how long this repression is going to go on for? Um, is it uh, is it going to have a long-lasting impact or can they recover from this? So their efforts are designed to recover the PKI in as good a, uh, a position as possible when for when the repression finally stops. And they also can't foresee in about 65 that um, the end is going to come for President Sukarno. So there's still a lot of activism at that time to ensure that Sukarno remains in power as much as possible because the left can see that um, with Sukarno gone, it would be a very difficult situation for the left. And conversely, with the left gone, Sukarno also lost a massive support base for him. So it was a time of, of ferment and of activism. So this, this sort of duality of power that continued to exist uh, after the killing, 66, 67, 68, this is something that's lost really from our understandings of, of uh, the Indonesian massacres because of that thinking that uh, the army took power on the 1st of October 1965 and then it was all over. It's not. 
we have to think that the construction of the new order took a very long time. People did not just lie down and say, okay, let the army take over. Even amongst the intellectuals, uh, student intellectuals uh, and people who were supportive of, uh, you know, putting a stop to the Indonesian Communist Party's dominance from politics, even they started to question a student activist such as Arif Budiman later on said, well, uh, you know, we wanted democracy. We wanted Sukarno to uh, to engender more democracy in the Indonesian political system, but we're not sure if, if we signed up for an army, for army rule in Indonesia. They're the, they're, they're the sorts of questions that people started to think as 1965 went on and ended, um, okay, um, what next? What is to to replace this now? And so that's why you have this duality of power because people did not necessarily accept, and we're talking about the left, uh, but not also, not only the left, sections of the Indonesian Nationalist Party, sections of the armed forces, were not necessarily in favour of an army-dominated regime in Indonesia. So it took some time to win people over by force and by stealth uh, to support the new order. That's why we have a campaign. We had a campaign at the time uh, called the New Orderization of Indonesia, the New Orderization of East Java. So it was a, a conscious effort had to be made in order to win support for the new order regime. So, so this is maybe for me one of the most valuable parts of your book. And I will say, and, and you come at this from an Indonesian studies perspective, I came at your book from a genocide studies perspective, and they intersect, but they're not the same. And the mental map I brought with me to your book and to the books of this series of podcasts was Rwanda, where there is this kind of spasm of violence that ends uh, abruptly. I'm, and you mentioned World War II. I'm wondering what kind of mental maps you brought in terms of examining the violence in Indonesia. Were there examples you had in mind or, or maybe examples that you believe did not fit? Or, or, or because you came from where you came from, you, you started fresh? Um, I did draw um, insight from, as I mentioned, the Holocaust, also from Rwanda, the work of Scott Strauss, for example, and also um, Cambodia. Of course, Cambodia being so close to Asia, uh, being part of, so close to Indonesia, meant that um, you know it was one of the the genocides that you you would look at and you would compare, as as well as that notion of was it a genocide? And these are some of the debates also that take place in terms of Cambodia. So, um, and Rwanda, that, that notion about neighbourhood uh, neighborhood killings. So people killing each other, uh, ki- killing people in their own neighbourhoods. So I had a look at some of that because it's about, you know, the involvement of civilians. How do you get civilians involved in killing uh, other civilians. And I found that what was interesting to me in terms of Rwanda was that um, when you compare it with Indonesia, that killing of each other at the local level was very difficult to unleash in the Indonesian case, at least in East Java, because um, why I say that was as as I went on to do more research into it, I found that um, in some villages, it was difficult to get people to kill communists, in inverted commas is a very broad term. Um, and so 
Then the response was by the army was to bring in people from outside into particular villages. So there was a term called drop dropan, which means that you drop people to particular areas to commit violence. So, and then there was some. Uh, I also utilised the oral history collections of the Indonesian Social History Institute in Jakarta, and in the interviews that they had in the town of Jember around that area, you also found that there was deep opposition to the Ansar forces, the Islamic youth group coming in to pick people up and to conduct raids and things like that. There was resistance from within the village from the PNI, the Indonesian Nationalist Party. They said, no, you're not going to interfere in this village. We will do the screenings. We will do the operations, not you, not people coming from outside. So that to me you know, ran a little bit against what uh, the grain of what we see in Rwanda of neighbourhood killings, that in Indonesia it was um, not neighbourhood killings in, in that sense because there you see the difficulties that people had uh, to kill those that they were in the same village in. And, and people knew of of each other's identities because um, it was a time of great political mobilisation in Indonesia. So you knew who was, you know, from the nationalist side of politics, uh, people who were supported the Islamic organisations like Nadatul Ulama, people who were supported the left. Um, a political identity was something that was not hidden in the lead up to 1965. And so why do you have then this reluctance to um, unleash violence and you needed that violence to come from outside, to be brought in uh, from outside your village. So, um, I yeah, I drew on some of those insights from, from other settings, definitely. And, you know, the work of, of Helen Fine about how do you make... Um, how do you make the killing of a section of people become something that is cost-free? There is no consequences with killing this group of people? How do you get people to start thinking that? How do you then isolate a group in the population to say it's okay to kill these people? There isn't, there, you have no obligations to them anymore. So I feel that, the, that much of the, the sort of military propaganda campaign in the sort of October, November 1965 was instrumental in doing that, in sort of dehumanising the victims and putting the Indonesian left as being outside of our universal, uh, you know, realm of obligations. So when I interview some perpetrators um, in East Java, they take certain cues to mean that it had become acceptable to commit violence against the left. And some of those cues were uh, came from political leaders, from Nadat al-Ulama, saying, you know, the Communist Party had done a bad thing, they had tried to uh, overthrow the government of Sukarno and therefore um, certain things need to be done to them. Now, often it's not explicitly identified what those certain things were but then it came to interpretations at the local level of how that might work and that's where you have the army cooperating with certain Islamic religious leaders in local areas as to how to interpret certain um, 
instructions and directives coming from up top. And I emphasise that it's not all Islamic leaders in local areas. So there were others who had disquiet about what was going on and said, you know, to, to, to kill another human being is a very serious thing to do. What if the people you are killing are not guilty? How, how do you justify yourself in a religious sense when you do that? So some of my interviewees also reported that their, their teachers at the time, their religious teachers, asked them these questions. Maybe it's better that you don't get involved because what if these people are not guilty and you've done something wrong by killing these people? And so the response at the local level was, was really quite diverse. And so by doing some of these oral history interviews, um, it started to become apparent to me, A, how the military uh, tried to convince people to take part in the violence, but B, also the kinds of resistance that, uh, for example, young seminarians uh, were able to mount against somehow trying to, not against, but maybe to divert themselves away from violence to seek uh, uh, excuses of why they couldn't participate in the violence. So they're the sort of grey areas that, you know, I wanted to bring out in this book in terms of people's responses, that it's not that people spontaneously rose up, but neither did people were people just forced into the violence, that um, the role of human agency is really important in how people survived this violence and how they recovered afterwards. Because how do you get a, a society that's been through this these events and and ha- what do people do afterwards? They were some of the, the big questions that I wanted to, to understand. Yeah. Um, one of the things you talk about here, and the, you talk about mostly with survivors or at least victims, um, is the gender difference of experiencing this assault. So, so can you talk a little bit about how women and men experienced um the violence differently? Well, clearly uh, it's all too common in all cases of violence that there are certain uh, gender-specific forms of violence that are carried out uh, against women. It's usually to do with um, family and children and the concept of honour, of uh, besmirching women's honour, whether it's through rape or uh, other forms of of sexual torture uh, that were enacted against women. But it's also about um, the loss of family members. As primary caregivers, um, women suffered the the loss of of children and their menfolk as well in particular. So um, a lot of the women that I interviewed in my book were separated from their children for a very long time and not that this doesn't affect men as well but that estrangement as the primary caregivers um, led to long-term changes in family life and in the, the future of their relationships with their children. So sometimes women were forced to give up their children to relatives or to their uh, household servants while they quickly went on the run. And that, that may well be the last time they see their children until they get out of prison, maybe decades later, or if their families were able to visit, they could see their children. But it's also um, led to children 
taking a certain attitude to their parents that was also honed by years of of new order propaganda that you know your parents are evil and the reason why you are marginalized and you suffer a great deal of disadvantage and poverty is because of what your parents did and so some children learn to resent their parents for not being in their lives and also for for being marginalized as the son or daughter of a, a political prisoner. So um, that's one. And for women also, they, when their men went into prison or went on the run, women also became fair game to uh, the civilian militias and to the army officers that they became then, um, if they couldn't find other sources of support, they were... Um, made to work for uh, prison guards, for army officers in order to survive. And they may also be subjected to um, uh, prolonged sexual torture and rape and they could also be made as um, the sexual concubines for several months or longer than that uh, by local army officers, local uh, government leaders and so on. And there was also a practice where the women became hostages for the men. So a woman may be detained for a, a period of time before uh, un- until their men were arrested. So they became sort of collateral um, and they would be in prison until their husband or their father or whoever uh, were, were captured. So um, they, the repression affected people in quite uh, in very gendered ways and also that uh, many women felt unable to speak about that because of the shame and the stigma attached to the kind of treatment that they had and because of the, the myth, the Gurwani myth, that these women were licentious, they were promiscuous, this was the nature of communist women. And so that had a huge impact on how leftist women were treated at the point of detention, of, uh, you know, of, of being seized from their homes and so on, that, that uh, the myth that Gurwani myth about what they had done became uh, really determined how they were treated. The the um, rumour that all Gurwani women had uh, tattoos on a part of their body somewhere and so it became an excuse for uh, men who were detaining these women to touch the women's bodies in order to look for the tattoo um, and... Yeah, so women's bodies became uh, the property of the people who were enacting this violence. So I'm keeping an eye on on the time, and we're just about out. I I wonder if you could just briefly for the readers or for the listeners tease um, the rest of your book by saying briefly, how does the story of the PKI end in in, um, East Java? Well, the, the the final chapters of my book look at the establishment of a rural base in South Blitar, an area of East Java which was relatively isolated. It still is in a way until now, an area where the PKI had been very strong in the um, in terms of political and social support there. So they retreated to that base in order to try and rebuild and to experiment with um, having an underground wing as well as an arm wing uh, and to try and rebuild from there. But really they were no match for the army and they got in the way of that new order 
uh, new orderization of East Java agenda of the army. And, and they served that purpose very nicely in terms of uh, the army needed to defeat this base roundly in order to send the message that we're here to stay, the New Order regime is here to stay, this is how we deal with remnants of the PKI. And so the final two chapters look at this establishment of this base. What did people do there? Were the accusations of the New Order regime that this was a fully-fledged guerrilla base that needed to be destroyed with incredibly uh, heavy armaments and a large concentration of troops? What was that about? Was that justified? The comparisons with the Viet Cong, etc. at the time, um, I unpack that a bit more in terms of what were people doing at that base? What were their, their visions about what they were doing? And then I look at the experience of counterinsurgency of the operation they enacted against that base, the Trisula operation. What was the effect of counterinsurgency on those villages in South Blitar and how do those effects echo into the present in that area, uh, you know, the creation of monuments, the opening up of roads, of surveillance over the 32 years of the New Order regime. And so that brings nicely, you know, to the, the contemporary aspect of 1965. How does the past resonate in the present? So I've asked one version of or another of this question to all of the um, authors I've talked about in this series. And, and that is to say, you bring us up to the present um, are you optimistic about um, the possibility or the pathway to the future for Indonesia and, 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 and the way it remembers and interacts with these events? Well, I think, Kelly, the landscape of you know, human rights accountability for 1965, I think it's, uh, it's changed significantly, in, let's say, in the last five years because I think uh, many of the survivors have passed on and that has a, a certain impact on uh, what is possible to be done for the survivors and the visibility of the issue. When you can see the survivors, you can relate the violence very much to their lives, to the people sitting in front of you. You have their images, you can hear their voices, and a lot of these people have now passed on. So we don't have that anymore. So what do we do in in that vacuum where the survivors have gone? And so and there's that issue. And the other one is, of course, the increasing moral panic uh, in Indonesia that's being fanned around uh, LGBTIQ issues, around uh, human rights, that these are Western constructs that have no place in Indonesia. And, you know, I think that uh, there have been increasing attacks on uh, gatherings uh, that, to discuss 1965 in Indonesia. And so this is there's a, an escalation in terms of, of um, a return to that fear, uh, the uh, closing up of discussions about this past. So, uh, for example, I've received news that uh, one of the major a major book chain bookstore chain in Indonesia doesn't plan to stock my book because of what they cite as sensitive content. And this is a time when there are books coming out about, you know, the 1965 genocide and mass killings and there's a whole flurry of, of these books. And so in a way the tide has been opened and it's impossible to put the genie back in the box and to have complete silence and closure about this past. It's not possible anymore. And I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing a, a response um, from anti-communist groups, from sections of the army to say we want to return to the past 
you know, we want to warn you of the dangers of communism. And it's replicating very uh, a lot of the themes which I used to hear when I was growing up in Indonesia again. But it's impossible to return to that past now because the genie's out of the bottle and Indonesians are questioning about, well, what is the, what, what is the real history of 1965? So we have, um, through the, the sort of the research and writing and the creative works that many people have been doing on 1965, you know, it, it's been impossible to return to that past. And so while the outlook is not, I think, terribly optimistic in terms of state accountability for this past, I think that um, it's uh, it's going to continue the efforts of people to, to ask questions about 1965, to to read about people's experiences, to write about it, to create uh, works of art and to create pieces of theatre and films and so on about 1965 or about how the, not about 1965, but about how 1965 affected people, that I think that is set to continue. So I'd like to end, well, end this part of the interview uh, with a personal question and you can answer it in whatever depth you feel comfortable with. You, you started the interview by talking about um, the fact that you grew up in an environment, in a community which told you misleading or false stories about the events of 1965. I wonder what your family and friends think of the work you're doing now. Well, over the course of my research, I found that uh, there were family stories which came out about how 1965 affected my family. Um, My mother was uh, put on a um, obligation to report to the local uh, military headquarters because she'd been involved in a pro Sicano uh, student group at the time, and I, you know, hadn't known this when I was growing up. And uh, because she was an ethnic Chinese woman, um, they were concerned that something she might be raped or the family might be extorted and so on. So her boyfriend took her place to report on her behalf for a few months um, of that and. You know, my family also ran uh, tobacco drying warehouses in uh, the, near the town of Jimber. And uh, my uncle told me how my um, our family had been asked by the local army um, operation commander if they could use my family's warehouses as a as a base for army operations into the plantation areas nearby. And, of course, um, my family felt they couldn't refuse um, that request and they um, put up with these soldiers who who came and went out at night to do operations um, against the, you know, the... um, the plantation uh, worker unionists um, in the area, um, you know, and and it, they they felt that there was a certain culpability in this. They had somehow um, facilitated that um, the committing of violent acts, and so while these stories were recounted, um, you know, in conversations and so on. When I wanted to do uh, formal interviews, it, it became very difficult that um, they weren't necessarily wanting um, this to uh, to be talked about because they felt that it um, it was somehow that they had been complicit in the violence. And so, um, for my family, you know, this these little known family stories continue to resonate. Um, for us about, you know, how we were somehow implicated in 1965. 
and, you know, the remembrances of, you know, the streets strewn with bodies after a night of killings and bodies being left speculatively, you know, as a, as a form of, of, of spectacle uh, for people to watch, that when my, my um, uncle went on his way to work, um, he used to go on a horse-drawn uh, cart and the man driving the cart would say, please look away to your left because on the right there was uh, a corpse. And this was, you know, daily occurrence for them. And we never talked about that. We never talked about that as a family. And it was, you know, when I started to do this research, these stories came surfacing and it was really painful for people to recall um, these, these memories. And so people remember because they want to remember and the people who don't, talk about these things often they don't want to remember and you know in a way for me I felt that my family were being forced to remember because of the work that I was doing so I really am grateful for them you know to, to them for that support and that trust because um, it was a you know a, a dangerous a risky task for me to be undertaking that research and they went along um, and supported me in that in the ways that they could well it seems the right place to end the interview I'll just ask you the final questions I always ask everybody which is um, first what um, what book or documentary or, or what, what what should our audience um, who's interested in your work what was there? Was there a book or something that was meaningful to you as as you were doing your research that you think I or the audience or both should read or watch? Well, it, it it's it's a funny thing, um, Kelly, because remarkably, one of the books that had an impact on me was uh, a book called The Inheritance of Loss by Kieran Desai, and you know. People ask me, oh, why that book? And I think there was something remarkable in that book about people recovering from uh, instances of political violence and division where um, two of the characters in the book, father and son, find each other at the end and they um, it's set in India in the foothills of the Himalayas in the north and the... And the father and son find one another and they hug each other and they jump up and down with joy. And the, this is the part of the book that talks about um, inheriting loss and how people have to turn away from things sometimes. You know, when you, you come to a country that's now become dotted with unmarked graves and yet you have to turn away to get on with your life. And I think that that really spoke to me because I felt that that's what a lot of Indonesians did. You know, when the killings were over, people looked and they saw their country had become dotted with unmarked graves, but they couldn't afford to look, to really look. They had to get on with their lives. They had to survive. They had to um, do what they can to put that behind them, even though they knew what had happened there. And to me, that is, you know, I inherited a loss and we all did as Indonesians. And in a certain way, the world inherited a loss with, you know, the, the loss of the Indonesian progressive movement had a huge effect in the Cold War. Um, and so how do we deal with that loss? Sometimes the only way to deal with it is to look away and to try and, and get on with your life and to find a better day. 
And I think that that's what it was, that, you know, because part of me continued to say, why didn't you do something about this? You knew about these horrible murders. Why didn't you stop what was going on? But for me, that book sort of taught me that sometimes people couldn't afford to stop and look to dig up the graves and to do something for the dead because they needed to keep going for something else. And I think that, you know, maybe the day has come that we look, we go back to those graves and look at those people who were in those graves and say, who were you? What did you do? What was it that you were trying to do, you know, by joining the left movement or not joining the left movement? How did you become caught up in this? So that's why I called the book Unmarked Graves because it, it is about about that, about, you know, how the country became dotted with unmarked graves and um, maybe it's time that we return to those graves and ask the questions how did you come to be here? What should we do for you now? Well, it sounds like a fascinating book, um, and, and, and yours is fascinating as well. So I want to say thank you so much for your time uh, today and for your thoughts. It's a, it's a remarkable book, and I recommend to listeners that, that they go find it. And so I hope that um, as you continue your research, we'll have a chance to talk to you talk again. Um, but thanks for being with us today, Vanessa. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Vanessa Heerman about her new book, Unmarked Graves, Death and Survival in the Anti-Communist Violence in East Java, Indonesia. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or Stitcher or other podcast providers, or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when I'll talk with Adam Jones and John Cox about their new textbooks about genocide. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.